0: Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos.
2: And I'm Guy Marzorati. in for Scott Schaefer, and bringing you the breakdown from downtown. Whoop we have made the move to KQED's new studios in downtown SF.
0: That's right. We'll be here for a couple of years while they remodel our other building. And in a moment, we'll be talking with our first guest at Beale Street, Amanda Renteria. She went from the Central Valley to become the first Latina chief of staff in the U.S. Senate.
2: Yeah, and she made runs for Congress, governor. Now she's working to get more women elected to office. So Lots to talk about with her, but first we want to give a little preview of next week's Democratic presidential debates especially Wednesday night. All eyes then are going to be on California Senator Kamala Harris, former Vice President Joe Biden, and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. They've all kind of gone after uh, each other, Biden and Harris, Biden and Booker kind of clashed in the last (laughs) debate.
0: They've really just gone after Biden. right? (laughs) And
2: and since then, that's continued. And lo and behold, the magic sorting hat has them all together (laughs) on stage again.
0: A Harry Potter reference. I like it. So yeah. So I mean, I think this is really interesting. We saw Harris obviously get a big bump out of the First debates, when she really went after on a personal level and a policy level, Biden's past support for busing um, to you know desegregate communities, he seemed a little off guard. Then um, he indicated this week he has been preparing for a more intense uh, intensity next week, and I think that um, you know one thing that we've seen this week is Biden really come out with a criminal justice plan. I think trying to sort of take some of that progressive mantle away from Booker and um, Harris, but. He's got a long history around criminal justice, and it's not all where Democrats are at in 2019.
2: Right. I think he's made it really clear, Biden, that he wants to talk about this plan and the future. He was uh, a gaggle of reporters he was talking to this week. He said, you know, if people want to go back and talk about records, I'm happy to do that. I'd rather talk about the future. And we've seen plans we've seen plans from you know from not only Biden but Harris this week coming out for the decriminalization federally of marijuana Booker has a criminal justice plan i think what made that moment in the last debate so effective for Kamala talking about busing was she was really able to personalize mm-hmm. and say look this policy uh that you pursued Joe Biden when you were in the senate in the 70s it affected girls like me of my generation in regards to right. busing I don't know if there's that moment or that way that she's able to frame criminal justice. And I largely, I wonder how willing is Kamala Harris to talk about her criminal justice positions in this debate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a funny one for them to all be digging in on. And we should say one of the reasons Biden did this isn't just the debate, but he was talking before two African-American groups this week, including the NAACP. I understand, actually, Harris got a very warm welcome there, not surprising. Um, But, you know, they all have some sort of skeletons in their closet around this. Um, For Biden, it's the, you know, Mid-90s Crime Act that he helped author, um, which really sort of set the federal government on this over-incarceration path. For Booker, it's the fact that he was mayor of Newark. And, you know, there's a lot... I mean, he has a lot of credit here, but he also has some questions Biden went after this Right.
2: This week, Biden, you know, without even being prompted, brought up, well, you know, you should talk about uh, Cory Booker's time as mayor in Newark when the police were doing stop and frisk. And you know if Kamala Harris is gonna talk about these policies, well, that's what, yeah. just five years ago, she was laughing at the idea of, of legalizing marijuana and not supporting uh, changes to sentencing in, in Prop 47 in California. I wonder if those are things Biden is prepared to bring up.
0: Right, I mean, on policing, I think that's an area where he might have a little bit, because of being part of the Obama administration and their civil rights enforcement division, really trying to step up around some of those things around Black Lives Matter and around police brutality. You know, Harris really demurred when she was AG to to take a leadership role on that. Um, She does have this long history. You know, she wrote that book, Smart on Crime. But one of the biggest sort of attacks on her from the left has been, is she really as progressive as she claims when it comes to her record as a prosecutor? Um, I heard this week from a little birdie that some opposition research dropped and some national media might be coming out with some pieces related to her record as DA ahead of the debate. Who knows who who that oppo came from Mm -hmm. but could have been one of these guys
2: and i think the reason why this is important important for her candidacy and why we're talking about this as well is the importance of debates for kamala harris and we've seen kind of this we saw a little bump after the first debate after that interaction with biden maybe a little sugar high because now that's come down a bit in the last few weeks debates are very important to her candidacy she's when and we talked about this from the day she got into the race the moments where you see her as a progressive champion are in hearings and moments when she's able to create these viral moments. But that puts a lot of pressure right. on these couple hours where she's up there on stage, almost like she has to make a moment.
0: And you have to wonder, too, given that the night before the, the, these three will be on stage along with the other candidates – Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders will face off. They are kind of coming from the same left wing of the party and haven't had that, you know, haven't shared a stage yet either. Will will we see what we saw last time, which is very two different, very different nights, not just in who's on stage and the style, but the substance of the debates. Um, so anyway, we're going to have to uh, leave it there, take a short break, and we'll talk more about this next week. When we get back today, we will be joined by Amanda, Amanda Renteria. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, here this week with Guy Marzarotti, and we are excited to welcome Amanda Renteria. She went from the Central Valley to working on Capitol Hill. She ran for governor last year, and she's currently interim president of Emerge, which trains Democratic women to run for office. Amanda, welcome to the Breakdown. Thank you for having me on. So, um, as I mentioned, you came from the Central Valley, you grew up there. Um, Your parents, do they meet as farm workers? Is that how they first...
3: No, mm-hmm. um, sort of. I mean, they actually met in high school okay. at a at a lowrider uh, at a lowrider <laughs> park. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, but their upbringing was very similar, right? They were both farm workers. Except for my dad is from Zacatecas, Mexico, so okay. he was actually born there. My mom was born in Southern California, but they had the same experience of picking fruit and vegetables all in, up and down the West Coast. Interesting.
2: How big was politics uh, in, in your childhood? I know your mom went on to run for school board, but that was some years down the line. But, you know, yeah. growing up, was that a conversation in your household?
3: You know, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a big conversation, but we also knew about um, Cesar Chavez and my mom when she actually met my husband, who's from Boston. she That was the first time I had ever heard the story that she was actually in the fields in Delano when Robert Kennedy came in. So she was oh, wow. part of the audience and she shook his hand. And so wow. the minute she meets my Bostonian
0: husband, said,
3: I didn't wash my hand for a week. That's
0: so funny she didn't bother to tell you
3: that. No, exactly. I mean, these were not conversations of politics that we had in our household. Yeah. Did you grow up speaking Spanish? I did. We, I actually did Mexican dancing, spoke Spanish, went to charreadas, um, I used to say uh, I lived in a world that had cowboy hats and ranchero hats <laughs> because in Woodlake, California, you can do both. Yeah. Did you feel, I
0: don't know, like, like I mean, obviously Latino culture was a big part of your life, Mexican culture. But um, was it something, I, I don't know, when you were at school, like, did there feel like a separation, a segregation
3: um, between, you know, different races at that time? So uh, growing up in the Valley was tough. I mean, you don't know it until you look back on it. But um, uh, a couple of things I remember is being embarrassed when my mom would speak to us in Spanish or my mom and dad would talk in Spanish. I could do both. But uh, when they did that in stores, you'd get these looks. And I remember just being like, mom, shh. Right. And that was kind of the rule. And the other thing is my parents, we would we would actually go after Sunday brunch. And there was a couple of times where uh, we had to walk out because we weren't served. Um, and so I knew those things existed, but I, you know, when you're a kid, you just think they exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only in looking back that I, I mean, I was still always upset when we had to leave Denny's and I didn't get my strawberry French toast. <laughs> but I obviously now, as I look back on those moments, realize that shouldn't be the way it is, um, even though it was for us. Um, so it, it was a different place, but I didn't know it growing up there. And
2: so you went to Stanford, and it seemed like that was not only a big deal in your family, but also just in your school, the fact that you were going, that was celebrated.
3: Yeah, well, what's interesting about it is you think, okay, you know, being the first woman, the first Latinx from my high school to get in, you just go. But when you grow up in rural America, and particularly with pretty conservative dad— Um, who talked to all of our prom dates before letting us go. You can imagine that letting his second daughter go far away for the coast. Exactly. To the coast was a big deal. Um, And so for us, I wasn't sure it was the right decision. Um, And I still to this day, it has shaped my life. Um, It was an economics teacher who came by and said, it's not about you, but it's about your community. And somebody like them can succeed at a place like that. And for me, that has shaped how I think about public service, how I think about my responsibility ever leaving that little town. Did you you said
0: your dad was conservative? Do you like mean politically or just sort of as a, as a parent? And
3: um, All of it. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a he went to the Ronald Reagan. Like, again, these are all things I learned later. They didn't talk about this. <laughs> Perhaps because maybe my mom and dad didn't agree. Right. Oh, maybe that was a little bit of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, he um, very much was a Reagan Republican at one time.
2: And so at Stanford, not only you played softball, you played basketball, and I swear every story you read <laughs> ended with some crazy injury yeah, of you diving you into have? first <laughs> first base. I mean, what was <laughs> – obviously you, you, you love sports, but what was it that, uh, you know, pushed you to – because you walked on on yeah, both the Yeah, that's Tryout. crazy. Uh,
3: I didn't want to tell my parents how much it was to actually go, and I thought, how do I get it paid for? And when I sat with my academic advisor, I was always afraid my parents were gonna make me come back home. And uh, when I sat down with my economic advisor, I said, how do I get this thing paid for? And she sort of said, you know, you're gonna be fine at the end. And I said, okay, but I really need to figure this out. And and she sort of off the cuff said, you know, if you play sports, you know, folks who play sports sometimes get out of here without any debt. And I was like, all right, I wanna do that. I can do that. And she sort of looked at me big eyes, right? Um, And as it turns out, I I did that. I looked at sports very much as an avenue to be able to figure out how to um, pay for it.
0: So what was it like walking onto those teams, though? Because I would imagine a lot of the players, I mean, had sort of worked their whole high school career to get there. And, I mean, was it, w- was there any eyebrows raised? Was there a lot of people kind of trying out in the there, moment? There is,
3: actually. Um, so partly trying out for the basketball team is an interesting one because you basically have to make it through conditioning first. Okay. So before you even touch a ball, you had to go through conditioning. And Stanford was known to have the hardest conditioning program in the country at the time um it, it wasn't particularly weird or different i think there was this there was an opportunity to do that what was weird and different is when you come from a place that not didn't have major recruiting right because you're in rural america uh, that part of it was different so when everyone showed up on the first day and had running shoes on and i had my basketball shoes on you kind of go something's not right that i don't know so it was those moments that as i look back on it um were i, I had to figure it out in real time and that part of it was a little uncomfortable. But then over time, you just mix in, right? And you worked your butt off as we, we yeah, heard. I couldn't walk. I actually had a third uh, I had my dorm was on the third floor and actually switched for a month uh, to be on the first floor because I didn't want to walk up the stairs after conditioning. It was mm.
0: so bad. so, While you were doing this, you also, um, I think, wrote a senior thesis at Stanford on women in politics, and you're now like leading this organization that's all about training and recruiting women. Uh, Do you think, I mean, a lot has changed since then. Uh, We've seen numbers increase, but women are still not represented, you know, sort of equitably when we look at the general population.
3: That's right. And uh, what's funny about it is I actually started off as writing women of color in politics. But Mm -hmm. at the time, there weren't as many to be able to do a real research study on. So it ended up being women and women of color in politics. Um, And we haven't made strides. And I think I think the reality is running is as much about changing what the image of leadership is. And so the idea that women haven't caught up in any industry is true. But it's happening, and we are seeing a bit of a tipping point. And certainly, 2018 was a part of that.
0: I was just going to say, like, what was what was your like? What did you find in that research? I mean, what, what was I the was thesis? trying to
3: deduce is how do people look at their gender and race as they think about um, policies, and which one do they lean into? What I actually learned is they leaned into whatever the discussion was at the time, hmm. and so uh, it happened to be for women of color, they leaned into race because the issues that people were dealing with at the time that were driven mainly by a male discussion was about race, not about gender. And so it was interesting to be able to deduce that. On the gender side, the scale of what they focused on was a lot less what we would think about as typical female or women's issues. Again, it was they had to just do what was happening.
2: Speaking of women in politics, women in politics from Stanford, let's talk about Diane Feinstein, that <laughs> worked for her uh, on Capitol Hill in her Senate office. What was that experience like and what did you learn from her?
3: Well, it's interesting because uh, when I – we were living in San Francisco and I said, we're going to just do this for a year because this is like – it's supposed to happen. I wrote about her in the, the- – right? In my thesis. So we got to oh, yeah, do it for you one must year. Have, yeah. um, it, you know, I grew up a lot in terms of learning politics in general. I mean, she is an executive. And so in some ways, you know, having an MBA training, being in politics, it was It was really interesting to see the way she executed on things. She had an idea and she said, how are we going to put the plan together? Right. Some people, some members that I've worked for or with often say, here's an idea. How are we going to get all the votes? Right. So it's almost Mm -hmm. an interesting way of thinking. And because of um, the training that I had, what I learned from her is her just dogged, here is the plan. How are we going to get there? Let's keep driving forward on it. Um, And really thoughtful in the way that she thought through her policies um, and really brought in her experience in San Francisco was so um, prevalent as she thought through what we're going to do or what we what she was going to lead.
0: Well, and you brought a lot of interesting experience to the table, too, right? After college, you worked at Goldman Sachs for a bit. You were a teacher in your hometown. Mm-hmm. Um a municipal analyst at one point. like <laughs> yes. like so I mean, when you decided to make the jump to enter politics, did you feel like, okay, these previous pretty disparate you know experiences really informed this, or was it just like, I need a change and this is my calling?
3: No, it was it was um all in some ways built on each other which is, gosh, this makes me better at being able to think about education policy as a teacher, right? This makes me better at understanding how markets and the economy works and trade policy works. Mm-hmm. And that must be a unique I think, experience, like sure. to have that experience as sure. a Democrat. And at the time, um, there was a lot fewer folks that had worked in the financial industry on the Hill, particularly on the Democratic side. Um, today, that's probably still somewhat true. Um, but it it sort of built on itself, and even the idea of okay, I've now you know I was in the on the Hill as a chief of staff. How do you change policy then, recognizing that that next step was to think about the campaign side of it, right, and the politics of policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all just built on itself.
2: Talking about affecting change, affecting policy on the Hill, you became the first Latina chief of staff in the Senate. Was that something working, I should say, for Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, was that something at the time you knew that was an accomplishment or breakthrough that you'd achieved? Yeah,
3: did we have to write about it? No, I had no idea, (laughs) actually, that when I became a chief of staff that there hadn't been a Latina before. Um, And it just happened. And in some ways, when I did learn about it, I was actually quite surprised that it had been so long, really. Um, But, you know. I I think the culmination of just doing the work and doing it really well is something that you just do in your life, right? And then all of a sudden you look up and you realize you're the only woman or the woman of color in the room. Um, Where it became much more real is when you're in the specific policies and you realize that you can bring a life experience that no one else can talk about. And that was always prevalent in my entire life in many ways. So... um, Eventually, you came back to California. I'm curious,
0: like, at what point in all of this did you have kids and get married, and you know that <laughs> whole had, other part uh, of your life? <laughs> I had
3: both my kids in D.C. Okay, um, when so I you was were a working chief on staff. the staff. Yeah. How was
0: that? And like, I mean, because I think we talk a lot about you know how quickly that has changed with more women coming into politics. But my understanding is, even 10 years ago, like like in Sacramento, for example, there was,
3: wasn't like a pumping room for new moms and things <laughs> like that. Yeah, I closed my door and did it as a chief of staff. That's a good thing about being <laughs> chief, I the, guess. The music <laughs> really really loud. Um, you know, listen, I, I, for me, what was really interesting is I, my, I was pregnant with my first while we were talking about the Affordable Care Act, and my boss was pushing for maternity care. It became probably my one kind of moment of just I was it was me we were talking about as to whether or not maternity care should be a basic right in the Affordable Care Act. And I was lucky to work for a senator who absolutely understood that. Um, who absolutely said, go take your time, do what you want to do. And I said, yeah, the most important thing I could do for my kid is be right here, right now, talking about whether maternity care is important.
2: I want to ask about transitioning from the work you did inside uh, the Capitol, inside of political offices, into actually running for office. In 2014, you ran for the House uh, in the Central Valley. What were the difficulties or the challenges going from the inside to someone who's now running for office?
3: So the first was I was actually looking for somebody to help to run and win. Uh, and then, of course, having some girlfriends say, Amanda, your quote is always, if not you, who? How is How can it not be you? Right? Of course, like,
0: girlfriends. Oh! <laughs>
3: um, Speaking but, truth, when you don't want to hear <laughs> it. I know. How dare <laughs> they? Um, but I think for me, the shocking part was I had spent this career you know, trying to bring a voice for rural America, for folks who didn't have the means to be able to travel to D.C. and express themselves in the same way. And all of a sudden knocking on the door and realizing that people didn't know what policies affected them, who made the policies, what they were, where they came from, was a rude awakening that we have got to do a much better job at engaging people in what is happening in their government. Um, But I have to admit, it was completely and totally shocking to me that people weren't as aware of it. And it's just you get reminded what bubbles are all about. Mm. Totally.
0: Uh, Just as a reminder, in case you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzorati, And our guest this week is Amanta Renteria. So you ran for Congress back in your hometown um, against David Valadeo. In 2014, you lost. Um, I'm curious, like, what you learned and if you think... 2018 was just a different year than four years prior because T.J. Cox did beat Valadeo. And we should say for people maybe not as steeped in this stuff that, you know, that was a district that Dems had looked at for a long time because of the registration advantage. And Valadeo hung on to a seat for many years.
3: Yeah. So a a couple of things. I think um, part of the reason why I went on the presidential campaign is remembering my very first pullback. That was David versus Amanda. And seeing that I was already behind, they knew nothing about me. They knew nothing about him. Actually, they didn't know us at all. And the poll said David versus Amanda and I was behind, more with Republicans but also with Democrats. And um, for me, that became a real uh, shocking reality about what it's like to run for office. And as I went on my own study during that time and running, what I learned is people weren't sure what an image of a woman looked like. And that's really where I've now where I now believe why it's so important to have different faces and voices and experiences leading our country, because so much of what we believe um, in our policy is who can lead it. And it had just never been done before. And so it was one of my big lessons about how does this country how does where I grew up. Think about leadership.
2: How did people think about the kind of work that you'd done when you were running, when you were knocking on people's doors and saying, "Look, I've been putting in the work, putting in the hours on Capitol Hill, working on policies like the Affordable Care Act." You know, how was that received?
3: It was more a lack of education than anything else. Um, you know, once you sat down with them and told them your story. Um, it was pretty simple, but the ability to do that, the time to do that, you have to literally go to every single house, right? And you're living in rural America, the world of small towns, uh, CD21 is anyway. And so um, what I knew pretty quickly is that this wasn't going to be a one election cycle, but it had to be built over time, and the education needed to really have people understand not only what politics are, what policy is, but that they too mattered and their voice and vote mattered. And so it's not surprising to me that from 2014 to twenty. 2018, we saw the change in the electorate in the Central Valley. Um, and I think that change is going to just continue as more and more people get involved and engage in politics like they are today. So you mentioned
0: that you worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign. You're the national political director. But I actually want to Come back to that in a second and talk for a minute about the governor's race. Um, You entered that in mid-February of 2018, and a lot of people on the Democratic side made accusations that you were a spoiler for um, Antonio Villaraigosa, the uh, Latino former mayor of LA who is running. That maybe you did this. I mean, we had Mike Madrid, one of his consultants, on our show (laughs) make that accusation on live radio, which we were surprised by. Can you talk about what the calculation was in jumping into that race, given that you were a little late compared to other candidates? in terms of announcing and the fundraising. And
2: and just if I add, there was, you know, that first week of rollout, it was kind of like we (laughs) saw that there was a a Twitter bot that posted that you had filed and we were searching for a website and, yeah, it was kind of...
3: Yeah, so uh, I believe everyone should use the platform they have to try and make a difference, period. Um, What I felt was happening in that election is that there wasn't enough of an emphasis on the Central Valley. There wasn't enough of an emphasis. A discussion about women, Mm. particularly at a time where we were having a Me Too movement all around the country. Um, And when you can step in and do something and try, I think it's important to do so. Um, I'm happy to see that we were able to pull not only attention, but resources to the Central Valley. Um, and that, to me, um, was part of making a difference in terms of what ended up happening all throughout those races in the Valley. And after the, the, the governor's race, I ended up being a part of Valley Works that actually helped fund uh, a lot more organizers in the Central Valley. But I just believe that you only have certain moments where you can have a discourse with the entire state. Politics and campaigns are one of them. And seeing a missing conversation at a moment that is so important for folks in the Central Valley, for the Latinx community, for young women to see and hear. Um, I'm hopeful we planted a ton of seeds for the future.
0: Well, speaking of the future, we are fast approaching 2020, and obviously it's already dominating everything. You know, I don't want to rehash 2016 because we've done that a lot. But I'm curious, as the national political director, as a Latina woman who was, you know, looking to bring out more Latinos to the polls to get a diverse electorate, what, like, changes do Democrats need to make, do you think, specifically to win the electoral college next time? And how much of that is, you know, the sort of question that I think is being debated, which is, like, getting back white working class voters versus getting a more diverse electorate out there?
3: Yeah. Um, You got to do all of it and all of the above. But um, I will say this, you cannot do it in in one election cycle, you must build it from the ground up. In many ways, it's the same exact lesson I learned in 2014, right? It all comes back home. Whereas if you are not doing that kind of education and reach, now or that we saw happen in 2018, frankly. Uh, I think one of the stories that wasn't told is how many organizations were on the ground doing the kind of uh, voter education, voter protection, all across the board what you needed to do. Um, People were doing it. And I think that piece uh, is critically important as anyone thinks about engagement in the future, as any of these campaigns um, think about it in the future. So you gotta do all of it, and it starts really way earlier than anyone anticipates. The second piece that I think is particularly important right now, there is nothing – there we have never seen a campaign like we're going to see in the same way that we never saw a campaign like Trump before. And so the seriousness by which um, you have to understand what's happening at that level and that all the norms and rules are changing and how to adjust to that in real time, um, that too is something – uh, that we are all going to go through as a country.
0: So you are at Emerge now. You're helping train women. You guys have had a lot of success in 2018, getting women into Congress and other offices. And I just wonder, like, how you're framing what you just said will be sort of an election like like no other. When we talk about, you know, whether it's Trump and the racist comments, whether it's the sort of um, Xenophobia, immigration, gender politics, Me Too, like, is there something specific that you guys are talking about with these candidates with an eye towards how unusual the political world is at this juncture?
3: Yeah, so I I say this often, which is women need to be exactly who they are, and more so today. And what I mean by that is you've got to run with your passion and who you are. You've got to make sure that whether it's you're running for office or whether you're leading in your community, the idea that you are leaning in with who you are and the fact that you believe in this mission, whether it's fighting for health care or whether it's fighting for a decency, we need women right now to step up. And I will, um, I actually, very last question I got before the poll started to come in in 2016 was, how do you think this is going to change when we have the first woman president, right? And my answer was, I don't think we know the potential we will unleash when half of the country sees a woman can be the most powerful person in the world who can hold that position. I think right now what we are saying is we need women to unleash that potential now And we've seen it already happen in 2018. And now it's taking it to that next level.
0: All right. Amanda Renteria, uh, interim president of Emerge. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy produced the show this week.
2: And our engineers are Jacob Winnick, Katie McMurrin, and Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Guy Marzorati. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy Marzorati.
0: He's a producer and a host. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Mlagos. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown. See you next time.